All right, man. Well, uh, I haven't used Skype in a while. After I hung up with you last time, I I had an opportunity to rate my call with you. I don't know if that's supposed to be a critique of our conversation or the <laughs> app. <laughs> I was like, that was that was the least interesting conversation of all time. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible call. Oh man, that's Luke Nelson. Another friend and jack-of-all-trades I admire. I was in the midst of one race in the European Alps, and he was about to embark on an epic one of his own, so we thought we'd catch up for a few minutes. Why don't you uh, fill us in on what you're about to embark on tomorrow, man? Uh, it might be the most ridiculous thing I've ever tried to do, <laughs> <laughs> actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm I'm here in Cormier, Italy, uh, getting ready to start the Tour de Giants, which is a 330-kilometer mountain race around the Val d'Aosta. For those who are metrically challenged, that's about 220 miles. And it's basically self-supported, but with rescue stations. <laughs> yeah, life bases. Is life bases. <laughs> life bases, yeah. So there's a pretty extensive mandatory gear list. The reality is you're in the mountains. You're getting pretty remote for about 50-kilometer sections at a time, up to just shy of 11,000 feet and down to as low as about a thousand feet. How did you get the idea to do this? You know, I signed up for this one. I'd heard about it. I'd had some friends that I respect quite a lot tell me that this is uh, one of the most significant mountain races they'd ever done. And to be totally honest, I signed up when I didn't get into another ridiculous event and was looking for something to uh, challenge myself. I was trying to get into a race that maybe a lot of people have heard of at this point called the Barkley Marathons. I oh, wasn't no selected way. for the lottery. <laughs> yeah. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, that was my consolation prize. For those who, who haven't heard about the Barkley Marathons, I've heard from many people that that's a movie that I must watch. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, and uh, it seems probably appropriately matched for the ridiculousness you're about to embark on here in a couple of days. I think they're similar, for sure. <laughs> However, the scenery might be a little bit better on this one. I think that's guaranteed. It's in the heart of one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And maybe that's where I'm at with this particular event is it's going into new territory that I know will push me harder than anything ever has before. And that will open my mind to new possibilities as well. I guess if you were to make a best guess now, what... What do you think is going to cross your mind uh, on these days out coming up? I think that there's going to be a, a wide variety of topics. And, and one of the things that I'll probably end up centering on as kind of a source of strength will be family. The support structure that's there for me always is my wonderful wife and my kids. And that always tends to be a source of strength for me because I can set out knowing that they believe in me, even when I get to the point where I may not believe in myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll be able to draw on that to keep moving forward. Uh, and, and we can follow up on this later, but that yeah. is a source of motivation for a lot of things that I do. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of get your, your thoughts on it right now. I mean, you're, you're sitting there trying to taper, just waiting for this thing to start. <laughs> uh, kind of staring in the face. I'm, I'm sitting in a van <laughs> looking across the valley at the starting hill and, wondering what the next few days will really bring yeah over starting hill which i think you've got many of the climbs i've been facing here the last couple of days it's got to be at least a vertical mile probably your first start your first yes, deal right it's just about six thousand feet uh, <laughs> it's the first climb <laughs> oh, six thousand of the over eighty thousand that we'll do during oh, the race oh man we're crazy We'd catch up again after his return, talk about the race, and so much more. So stay tuned.
born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. And I, I was literally sleep running. I'd find myself kind of stumbling off the edge of the dirt road on one side and then later on the other side. And I'm not, I don't recall anything that was happening in between. I don't think there's another way that you can connect as intimately as moving under your own power through a space. And we were able to see these pristine, wild places in their completely natural state where you felt like you were the only humans on the planet. For me though, the bigger motivator when I think of my family during these things is that more intrinsic, like how doing hard things is okay and it's okay to admit that it's hard and that you struggle. And maybe in society today, that's a problem that we have is we aren't willing to speak out and say, you know what, this is really tough for me. Um, I'm really struggling with this. And how can I teach my kids through my actions that it's okay to have those struggles, yet you need to be able to figure out how to pull through. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Hey, welcome to episode 15, a conversation with endurance athlete and activist, Luke Nelson. Like many of the athletes featured on this podcast, Luke has found many ways to enjoy the wild places over the span of his life. But as you've heard, these days, as a trail running ambassador for Patagonia, he channels his athleticism into trail running exploits all around the world. Today, we'll recap his latest race and dive into the deep end of the pain cave, talk tools of resilience, and from there, we'll push a little deeper and talk finding inspiration and balance in his roles of athlete, father, husband, physician's assistant, and now passionate activist. In this episode, we'll take you from the high summits of the Alps down to the wild rivers of Idaho and into a pristine quarter of Patagonia. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, so the race I just did was the Tour de Giants, commonly referred to either as TDG or simply the Tour. The race itself is is certainly one of the most difficult mountain races in the world and by far the most audacious thing that I've attempted to do as an athlete. And uh, the race is ended up this year being 231 miles with 89,000 feet of ascent and descent. So 89 up, 89 down. And the race you're allotted a total of six and a half days and I was able to finish in 85 hours and 23 minutes which is just over three and a half days and finished eighth eighth person to cross the finish line this That's, year how much sleep do you think you got in total to total sleep time was two hours and 30 minutes and the rest <laughs> of it was uh on the move um so pretty wild so it begs the question for myself having recovered from ridiculous events and uh endurance exploits, and I know there's some other listeners out there that have probably done the same. What was the most intriguing, weird thing that happened to your body in the recovery phase from that? So, so probably the biggest thing afterwards is the amount of swelling in my feet and legs. It, it took about a day and a half to settle in, but you know, normally I have pretty well-defined ankle bones and they were lost, <laughs> gone. <laughs> Uh, my feet more resembled like bratwurst than hot dog as far as size was, of my toes. Uh, like, I, was, I was actually going to ask you, I was going to give a creative question I was going to ask you is if you, if you had to describe your feet after a race like that as an animal, what, what animal would you pick? <laughs> the immediate thought is kind of like a camel because it's kind of like undefined. <laughs> yeah, or, or an elephant. An elephant would probably be pretty similar because my toes just kind of started to 
be kind of a singular unit. <laughs> I was kind of thinking like maybe a platypus, you know, it's like, you know, you have to kind of web. Step, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Like step back and you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely an animal. But you're like, up close, you're like, oh man, there's just a bunch of folds of tissue there and it's all gray. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, amazingly, I didn't have a single blister. What? I did get crazy subungal hematomas under my big toes though oh, so man. swelling under my big toenails that basically looked like my nail was kind of floating in space <laughs> oh, <laughs> those were pretty God. bad how long did that last i mean you're still dealing with it right now or no so right now the only thing i'm really dealing with is i have some numbness in my big toes and i think that was just because the swelling was so significant i drained those subungal hematomas about four times each with an impressive amount of fluid out each time which Maybe it was a little gross for some people, but now I'd say my feet feel fine other than the numbness. And that was during the race? I did it. Uh, we did it twice during the race and then twice after. Okay. And I think I saw a bunch of photos of you getting taped up. Was that just to protect all these areas that you were draining? And Yeah. There, you know, there was so much. It, was, it wasn't even as much for the big toes. It was for the bottom of my feet. The downhills were so significant. I mean, most of the climbs there were between four and 6,000 feet. And the descents were the same. So you come down these steep technical downhills and the bottom of my feet were starting to feel a little just hot coming down all those. And so the crew at the Tortoise has this incredible taping technique to help on the bottom of the foot. And we taped them up at about 80 miles and it did the deed for the whole rest of the race. Wow. One of my other questions I was going to have to you, and I think what defines a lot of these experiences for us is, is the low point. <laughs> and navigating yourself through the low point. Perhaps hallucinating during the race was a high point, but... Uh, it was certainly interesting. You know what I'll say? A lot of endurance athletes describe pure suffering as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a skewed definition yeah, right. <laughs> compared to the rest of the world, maybe. Yeah. So, so low point would have happened for me during the second night. So that would have been Monday night. I hadn't really slept very much. I'd had about 20 minutes of sleep from Sunday at noon until Monday night. And, and there was a section where we were on a dirt road. It just, it was endless. It just kept going on and going on. And I hadn't done really detailed course studies like I would for a shorter race because it was too big to remember. And I, I was literally sleep running. I'd find myself kind of stumbling off the edge of the dirt road on one side and then later on the other side. And I'm not, I don't recall anything that was happening in between. And that went on for what I think is about 45 minutes until I came into an aid station. And at most of the aid stations, you're able to sleep for up to two hours. And at this particular station, they would not let me stay and sleep. And, and that was really frustrating to me because I needed, I needed a few minutes to lay down they don't allow you to sleep on the trail. If your GPS tracker stops moving, then they send rescue and you get disqualified if you're not hurt. <laughs> so um, it was, it was, that for me was probably the lowest moment. And it turned into one of the highest moments for me. I left that aid station kind of upset. And on my way to the next one, I caught another runner who was also having a significant difficulty with sleeping. He was in the middle of a very well-marked well section of trail and was lost. I caught him and he's like, I'm lost. I can't navigate this. And I was like, well, it's like the flags are all right here. And he's like, I just can't do it. <laughs> and so together we went into the aid station, which is about a mile from where I caught him. And two other American runners came in as well. So there was four of us there, three from the U.S. And one, uh, Jens, was from um, Denmark. We all took a quick nap together and then ran together for pretty much the rest of the night, which was awesome you know kind of team america out there keeping each other entertained and having this incredible experience together that is, for me is one of the kind of the fonder moments of the camaraderie of challenge uh that came out of the event yeah so that's that's what made it a high point for you for the race was just that moment to be able to come together with, with some of the other racers on the course and kind of pull out of that that hole yeah and and you know we were all facing these these sleep monsters you know pretty significantly and all pretty downtrodden because of it. But as a unified group, we were able to overcome that, keep moving, you know, lighten the mood a little bit and laugh at the absurdity of what we were doing and <laughs> carry on. <laughs> yeah. I always find it really intriguing and, and defining and probably a big reason why you do these races is when you have to navigate through that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
it's a skill that has to be cultivated for every endurance athlete. And yet it's mostly trial by fire, right? I mean, yeah, I think the only way to learn how to deal with that is to deal with it. <laughs> um, and, and, and sometimes you don't deal with it very well. And you look back on the, on whatever the effort was and think, man, that was pretty terrible. And I need to do things differently. And, and other times it, you're able to figure out the best way to keep your, your, your brain in it. Cause it, cause it really, really boils down to it. These, these extremely long events or, or long days in the mountains, the same, they, they come down to how you, how your mind is framed and how you're accepting reality. The reality may be somewhat staged in, in, in endurance racing. Cause at any point you could just stop, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not something that you have to be doing, but you really have to tap into your kind of inner self and, and determine what, how you're going to overcome when it becomes challenging, because it's going to be, you know, I, I've been doing ultra marathon racing for a little over a decade now and, and feel like I have some pretty good coping skills or, or strategies to, to move forward through that and for me in this particular event it it worked really really well yeah i mean can you give maybe another example because i I find this resilience or to be able to tap in you know fascinating in in many people's lives and and i think it always starts with a belief or a thought that crosses your mind that's really not helpful right (laughs) yeah negativity kind of creeps in and and it's this kind of battle of 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 if you're going to fall into a pit of despair and, and wallow in it, or if you're going to let those, let that thought pass and, and, and move through, you know, another moment in the race that maybe would be a, a, an example of this is going into the second night, just right at nightfall, I was leaving a low Valley. I think it was maybe the lowest point of the course and, and headed up towards uh, uh, a refugio that was the next aid station. And the course was going up these stairs carved in rock. And, and it was, they were tall stairs, kind of knee high. Every step was a really big step. And I mean, I'd been on my feet for uh, a day and a half, almost two days at this point. And I didn't want to be walking up really steep stairs. <laughs> it just wasn't what I wanted to be doing at the time. And I was, I was in between, you know, I was, I, was, I was by myself. There wasn't any runners even within sight. And I started to think about the why. And the why is a really hard thing to define for me of why I do these things. But the motivation to keep going, I often draw on, um, on the strength of my family. You know, I have this incredible support system with my kids and my wife that believe in me to do these things. And I feel this incredible strength when I think of them and things are getting challenging to be able to draw and, and, and overcome. And it also brings a lot of positivity kind of to my mind. That way it's, you, you don't get into the negative thought process. And I start thinking of what I'm going to tell them afterwards or what I'd like to hear them tell me as I'm trudging up these stairs. And the stairs ended up being almost 4,000 vertical feet of stairs <laughs> before it was all said and done. Oh, um, and uh, and anyway, anyway, you know, I, there's I like, there's like them and, Greek legends about that. There's like, you know, it's like, it's like hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was. Um, but, but I, 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 you know, I kept thinking of things that, uh, what I'd like to have with me in hell, I guess, yeah, as I walked up those there's stairs. Sisyphus and then there's Luke. There's Luke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's got a vertical mile of stairs to do over and over yeah. again. I don't know. Maybe, maybe one way to think about it is kind of like the internal narrative that you tell yourself about why this is important to you and to your family when you're, when you're negotiating that low point and staring at that vertical wall of stairs. Yeah. Well, something that I've learned doing these ultra marathons and things is you do come up short sometimes and that's okay. You know, that's part of it is failure is part of life and it's how you accept that or move through that. For me, though, the bigger motivator when I think of my family during these things is that more intrinsic, like how doing hard things is okay, and it's okay to admit that it's hard and that you struggle. Yeah. And maybe in society today, that's a problem that we have is we aren't willing to to, to speak out and say, you know what, this is really tough for me. Um, I'm really struggling with this. And how can I teach my kids through my actions that it's okay to have those struggles, yet you need to be able to figure out how to pull through. And as you face 
these difficult things, you know, as the stairs keep adding up or you shine your headlamp up and you can't see the top of step after step and you think, man, I can't wait to tell my kids about how ridiculous this is when I get done. And the framing of that is not when I quit going up the stairs, but when I finish going up the stairs. It's a story you want to tell. Yeah, yeah. And, and that motivator is, is pretty dang powerful. When, when that's the story I want to write, you can make it happen even when you don't want to step up anymore. In the spirit of story, we move on to the story of how Luke found his calling as an athlete, or rather, how it found him. honesty it was kind of an accident that I found it um, I, I I did I, I ran once one season of cross-country in high school because the cross-country coach saw me as a troublemaker and was trying to help me not be in trouble anymore and I looked up to him and so I went and it was mediocre at best and that was kind of it for running for me uh, until I was in my mid-20s I was working at a ski shop and and a friend of mine during the summer when we were just kind of not doing much in a ski shop in the summer, uh, bet me that I couldn't run the local marathon. Um, I took him up on the bet, went for a training run, signed up then, went for a training run, ran three miles, my legs were terribly sore, uh, and then ran the marathon a week later <laughs> on my one training run. <laughs> um, but the, um, I ended up running a 308 marathon um, and got third in my age group and thought, huh, that's interesting. Like, off the couch. Um, yeah, I mean, l l like l off the couch with like no uh, real training behind it. I mean, I skied and kayaked and skateboarded a lot. And um, that was it, though. And, and, and shortly after that marathon, a person who had become really influential in my trail running uh, invited me out to a trail running race and said, hey, you ran that marathon. Why don't you come up to this trail running race? And I went to the race and the guy that invited me, he and I ran together for the first little bit, and then he pulled ahead, and I didn't see him again come to the finish line, and I crossed the finish line first, and my friend Ray had gotten lost, <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> handed me the win, but it was, uh, uh, it, it solidified to me this really positive feedback, and like, man, I might have some, some potential in this, and I really enjoyed it, and then hanging around the wrong friends. They're like, hey, you ran that trail race. You should run this 50-mile race in the spring and ran my first 50-miler. And that one year from when I ran the first marathon, I ran my first 100-mile race <laughs> and, and podium finishes in those. And, and it just turns out that I've got some pretty good genetics for it. Um, and, and now I've made a career of, of being a, a professional mountain athlete by running through the mountains. It's a, it's a beautiful story. You basically were shamed into run by your coach initially because you're a troublemaker. Probably because you were a yeah. skateboarder, right? No, I was a skateboarder <laughs> and I was in trouble a lot. <laughs> and then, then you run a race out of, uh, well, I guess, uh, spite or pride to try to prove your pride mostly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then here we are, you know, 12 years later and um, running's taken me all over the world and uh, giving me incredible opportunities to. To connect with people and the planet and can't believe it's it's where i'm at i'm really curious always kind of this transition of being solely focused i guess on the racing and i mean you must have been a bit focused on the results too and 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 where you are now which obviously we want to expand on a little later on but i mean i gotta imagine part of the reason you stuck with it is because you were successful right off the bat, right? I mean, it's gotta, it's gotta feel good. I mean, oh, for sure, right? yeah, I mean, no like, doubt. Oh my god, yeah. I'm really good at something, and I just did this off the couch. Like, man, I could be really, really good at this. Yeah, and I yeah. I mean, it, I, I totally agree. I think that there's a really powerful positive feedback in those first couple of years of uh, of the sport that really solidified that uh, I had a space where I could be competitive. That's certainly the competitive aspect has maybe shifted from being an outward competitiveness to more of an inward competitiveness, mm -hmm. where I'm, I'm less concerned now about racing or race results than I am discovering where my potential boundaries are 
Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's the edge of possibility for me? Um, and, and that can, that could be what's, you know, how can, how fast can I run up my local training hill or how fast can I link together all the peaks in Idaho? Or for me, that, that exploration is, is far more interesting to me now than how I stack up to another runner, for yeah. example. And why, why is that? I mean, this, I guess this addresses this question of, you know, the extrinsic versus the intrinsic motivations we were kind of tapping into before, but were you not finding as much satisfaction after a period of time of doing well in races? Or can you think of a story hmm. where you, I guess you really started getting attached to the, this process. I mean, you speak a lot of kind of this internal process that happens on these endeavors and, and actually wanting to up it, up the commitment to find that place. And I guess when did yeah. you get that hook? I, th- I think the the shift happens or happened for me partly with international travel. So as I've traveled to races internationally and was really inspired by the route that they could use or, or, or were able to use for a race and then coming back home and because of restrictions with permitting and things like that, that races were often compromised in what I would consider maybe the, the, the more aesthetic route or the more challenging way um, that I found to be, I, I got more and more drawn to going my own way as opposed to following the boundaries of racing. Um, because I felt like there were a lot of really cool things to do in the mountains under your own two feet that couldn't be done in a racing environment. You know, maybe someone looking outwardly would say, oh, it, it just that he was starting to slow down a little bit and, and, and stepped away from competition uh, because of that. And, and for me, it, was, it had nothing to do with that. It was more about I wanted to be in specific places and, and explore more specifically what, what I could do in those places where racing just wouldn't allow that. We just wasn't allowed there. So and for good reason, yeah. you know, I, I support those reasons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so more inspiration than burnout, I guess. Right. And yeah. And, and this is something, you know, moving through the mountains under my own two feet is something I plan on doing for a long time. And to do that, I need to be able to be inspired with what I'm doing. I guess one component that people don't know about, I mean, you have, were a very successful ski mountaineering racer as well. Um, yeah. It was just during that time. Were you, were you competing ski mountaineering racing as well when you started to see this shift? So I started schemo racing after I finished that first hundred mile race. So it was really kind of around that same time. There was a I mentioned Ray, Ray Landon early on, uh, and another runner, Zahan, the Lemoria, or Z. Oh, yeah. Both of those guys were really influential. Z at the time was part of the La Sportiva mountain running team, and Ray was just a crusher. Um, and those guys kind of invited me to, to participate in uh, a Ron and A race or Schemo race, and, um, and then proceeded to just hand it to me at every race they were both at for a couple of years as I learned the sport. And, uh, and uh, you know, eventually with ski mountaineering, it, it became extremely successful for me. I, I managed to win a U.S. championship, went to the world championships a couple of times to represent the United States. And I, again, just a, I never would have imagined, you know, just some punk skateboarder kid from rural Idaho would end up being that that competitive and that successful tightly clad in spandex with small skinny skis racing oh, on the side of a mountain oh boy yeah <laughs> one piece like suits uh, i just thought i'd give the audience a little visual it's uh, oh yeah well and, and basically the equivalent of racing on everybody's little sister's skis <laughs> <laughs> except your little sister's skis are heavier yeah, they are yeah it's true <laughs> I asked Luke to expand on how those formative years discovering and honing his skill as a professional athlete led him to discover his best self, a more balanced individual, and how he manages that balance amongst all the diverse roles in his life.
I, th- I think it was a result of the process. You know, it, when, when I look back at, you know, how I was preparing for all of those races, whether they were ski mountaineering races or running races, you know, I was spending a lot of time moving in the mountains uh, and a lot of time alone. Where I live is not necessarily known as a hotbed for endurance sport. <laughs> and so a lot of these, the training I was doing, I would do by myself. And I found this profound connection with the wild as I was doing it and, and dedicating, you know, many hours of every single day and, and found that as I did that, I became calmer in my day-to-day interactions and I was able to focus better on my studies or my profession. And it just allowed me to, what I feel like, just be a better human because I was connected to the world around me and had time to, to make that connection on a really kind of solitary personal level you take on a lot in your life and you wear a lot of hats and we we talked about this before i mean you've got three wonderful children you're married you've got a full-time career as a physician's assistant and working in orthopedics and trying to train as much as you do could literally break the back on the time you have but it it actually really fills your cup you know and yeah um, it's hard to realize or appreciate it unless you've actually incorporated that into your own life. And you kind of touched on it saying that, okay, well, you know, an hour or two outside in that space actually allows you to be more efficient, more present and a better person probably in your home life and in your work life. Uh, And I, I totally get that. I think that's something that not many people appreciate until they actually take the risk to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people looking from the outside would judge what I do as selfish. Yeah. You know, oh, he spends that time away from his family or from work or from other obligations when he does that. But I see it as, as making me far more efficient and present, like you mentioned, um, when I am in those environments after I've done that training. Or if I have that, I know it's coming. You know, I, I do have to get creative sometimes with my schedule and uh, I have some pretty nice headlamps that allow me to do a lot in the dark (laughs) but but even if i you know i've had a long day at work and uh i get home and i can spend some time with the the family and and then i'll go out and and train that night you know before i go to bed and even knowing it's on the horizon allows me to be sharper uh in the time in between yeah i mean is there i mean you must have had some insights i mean can you think of a as a story or insight at some point during your training when you didn't quite have as good of a balance when it really kind of sunk into you that this is this is something that's really fundamental to your nature of being the best person you can be yeah i I actually think of two examples on both sides of the spectrum there um one was the last year of ski mountaineering racing for me um i i tell people i'm retired it seems funny to say i'm retired at the age that i'm at but um i i stopped ski mountaineering racing um, because the training took too much time. Uh, I would most of the time need to drive, you know, 25 minutes or so to the, to the local ski area, or at least to the mountain range where the ski area is. And that would take an extra hour of driving on top of the training time. And, and as I tried to train through that last season, I, I saw that the time commitment itself was taking too much of a toll on work life and family life. And part of that is I was training it. 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and or 11 p.m. and I was super tired when I was trying to treat patients and make clinical decisions and then I wouldn't I was too tired or too worn out to spend quality time with my family uh, and so the, the the pendulum has definitely swung that direction when I retired from that and focused primarily on running as kind of more my year-round sport and find that I can concentrate that time commitment down a little bit um, and how much more at ease I feel as a human when I'm able to do that. I see quality improving and, and immediately saw it that spring when that hour of drive time went away and I'd have that extra hour to spend with my family or sleep so I could be better when I was with my family or with patients. It, it, it was just that spring was a complete 180 degree shift between both sides of that pendulum. And I feel like it's a much healthier balance where I'm at now. 
What's uh, you have an example of kind of being on the other end of the, that pendulum? Not not. I guess. Oh, uh, like stop, like not, like not, not, not training and not doing enough. enough. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, feeding the rat. It's both white. Um, uh, makes so much sense to me. Um, I would I would almost say that today is an example of that um, because for the last two weeks since I finished the Tour de Giants, I've not run a step. Most of my body feels kind of broken down, and I start feeling really uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, I haven't had that time to connect, and and I, there may be a little bit of kind of a post expedition kind of blues happening, but a lot of it has to do with that missing connection. You know, two weeks of not having that, I feel it today, and and my wife who's in the other room would probably nod her head right now saying, yeah, he needs to get outside. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, did you catch, I mean, I totally relate to this. I mean, I fully relate to this. And I I mean, did you catch yourself in a moment like at work? Like just like, oh man, I'm I'm being an ass. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the medical assistant I work with on a day-to-day basis uh, just yesterday kind of snapped back at me when I was, I was being a jerk and, and I, I look back and I say, well, what's changed right now? And what's changed is I'm not, uh, I'm not getting outside as much as I need to be, um, or not at all. And, and really, I mean, there's not, that doesn't happen that often because I make it a priority, but right now that's a pretty clear example of, uh, I think the, the, the look on my, my kid's face last night when I put him to bed, it wasn't the same, like, oh man, like, I love you guys. Good night. I was like, get in bed. You're driving me nuts. You know? (laughs) (laughs) And, and after they'd gone to bed last night, it was, I had kind of some strong reflection that like, man, like, uh, I need to change that and get, and get things back in the balance that they should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, balance is what we're all looking for in fact it's uh, it's a title of your website i believe right it is yeah yeah and it's um it's an always moving target so it's difficult to achieve for more than an instant at a time (laughs) coming up next you know i was living what i would consider a somewhat examined life and i'd ride my bike to work and i'd recycle and turn off the lights, you know, things like that to reduce my impact, but it wasn't enough for me anymore. That experience changed what I felt like my responsibility was. And, and that, that was the pivotal moment. That's where it all changed. To hear more about that moment and when it all changed, stay tuned. These moments in our wild on our public lands are brought to you by our partners at the Wilderness Society, founded by conservation giants like Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and honored in the imagery of council member Ansel Adams. The Wilderness Society has had a mission, protecting our public lands since 1935. In this time of unprecedented threat to the places you care about, please consider learning and offering your support at wilderness.org. topics I find so intriguing in these conversations is how accomplished individuals like Luke move on beyond personal accomplishment and discover a responsibility to advocate for a cause. As our conversation continues, we discuss his development as an activist and his work for wild places of the world, a journey that has taken him from the rivers of his backyard in Idaho to the vast expanse of Patagonia. We'll finish talking about having the courage to take a stand and, of course, give some advice for the next generation of activists. I've always had this strong connection. You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a home where um, 
my dad works for the Boy Scouts, and I spend every summer of my life at scout camp because that's what a professional Boy Scout does when they on their career path. And um, so I, from early on, I've, I've developed this strong connection, and that's clearly manifest as as I've grown into adult and, and with my athletics. But as 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 that connection evolved to a desire to do work to protect and advocate for wild places started with a dumb idea which is kind of par for the course for me where a friend uh, of mine Ty Draney uh, and I decided to run the length of the middle fork of the salmon um, in conjunction with an environmental group called Save Our Salmon they were looking for something to do to help raise funds and awareness for their cause of salmon migration um, or salmon spawning. And so we came up with this idea, hey, we'll do this run. We'll run along the middle fork of the salmon in this wilderness area. It's right when spot trackers had just come out and we'll broadcast to the world our position and try to get people to pledge, you know, a dollar amount per mile we ran. So we put this pitch all together and Save Our Salmon was super excited. And it was also just before good GPS mapping came out, like online mapping. And so we looked at some maps and made, did some rough math. He's a Spanish teacher. I'm terrible at math. Combined, we made some bad decisions about what we thought this route was going to be. <laughs> told, told people it'd be about 100 miles. It'd take us two days. On the third day after we'd been benighted and sending out messages that we were in trouble and spent the night spooning under a Mylar emergency blanket, we finished with about 150 miles and a ton of interest in what we had done. It raised a bunch of money for Save Our Salmon. It was a really successful process for them. And, and for me, that was kind of an introduction in using an athletic platform to, for conservation. Yeah. It was I, just a taste. You know, before going into it, you mentioned how successful it was. I mean, were you, were you worried that this was just going to look like some silly self-indulgent endeavor and wasn't going to do anything? No, we weren't too concerned about it, and mostly because we felt we felt uh, really confident that it would be weird enough that it would be useful for them. Because what they were trying to do is do something different. Mm. And it, it ended up being one of the first run-for-activism kind of projects using some social media and things. And because it went relatively disastrous for us, I mean, we finished, but there was all sorts of drama it was it was a better tool for them because of the way that it all went down. I mean, you know, had we gone and run and everything gone smoothly, there wouldn't have been as much interest or sharing. And for us, it felt like a, a really, it didn't feel selfish. It felt like a, a way for us to give back. And that's always been something I've, I've grappled with maybe since, that am I doing this because I want people to see me do a thing or am I doing it for the place that I'm trying to help? And kind of the next step for that was an invitation to go down to Patagonia with the company Patagonia and make a running film at Conservacion Patagonica, the Doug and Chris Tompkins project, where myself and two other Patagonia athletes went down and got to experience firsthand what was happening there and how Doug and Chris had bought these defunct ranches and rehabilitated them and were in the process of turning them over to be national parks. That moment, being down there, spending time with Doug and Chris, we spent 20 days there, left me with a burning desire, would be maybe the best way or kind of cliche way to describe it, to do more. I, I, I looked at my life and I looked at what Doug and Chris were doing and, and realized that the power of an individual is extremely useful and that I wasn't doing as much as I needed to. And Chris has been an incredible mentor along the way, but I came home and immediately got involved with working with Idaho Conservation League, projects in my backyard, because I wasn't doing anything here. And I was living what I would consider a somewhat examined life, and I'd ride my bike to work, and I'd recycle and turn off the lights, you know, things like that to reduce my impact. But it wasn't enough for me anymore. That experience changed what I felt like my responsibility was. And, and that, that was the pivotal moment. That's where it all changed. Yeah. I mean, is it, you think it was the first time you really got a sense of, 
uh, it's a number of different words, like kind of the holy grail or a model, uh, a mentor. You know, everybody has their sports heroes. This was this was kind of your activism hero with yeah. Doug and Chris. Yeah, and and when I went down there, I was naive to what it what they were doing. Why don't, why don't you highlight a little bit more? Because I obviously know the story. We actually rewatched this last night. I love the film, and I encourage anybody <laughs> to, to watch it. And we'll obviously post it with this podcast when it comes out. But um, you know, for some people that don't know Doug's history or, or and Chris's history, why don't you expand on it? Because I think it's one of your greatest successes uh, and I endeavors. Agree. Yeah. So so Doug, close friend of Yvonne Chouinard, founder of the North Face and Esprit Clothing, you know, he he sold those businesses and and you know had this mass of money and Chris who was the CEO of Patagonia in its early days uh, when she retired her and Doug as partners felt this profound need to protect wild places and they had this immense resource money to be able to buy large tracts of land in uh, Patagonia with the hopes of of letting them become wild or rewild them. And, and, and a lot of them were completely wild, but they were part of these large ranches. So they, they began purchasing them up and then in the rehabilitation process. And this invitation comes along to us as, as athletes. It's like, Hey, and there's a little bit of a, a, a additional backstory that had to do with Rio's Libres and a first project that this all got rolled together. And the reality is, is I really wanted to go to Patagonia because it's Patagonia. And I was like, well, if this conservation trip is the way for me to get down there, I'll go. But when I was there, I learned about the importance of keeping those wild places wild because I got to see both sides, places that had been wild and untouched and places that had been overgrazed and used to death in a rehabilitated state. And we got to see this firsthand under the guidance of the visionaries that Doug and Chris are, and and the profound experience of running. We we, we, we ran, because that's what I do. We ran from the northern end <laughs> to the southern end of the park in, in a in a single push. And and there's a profound connection that happens when you cross a space under your own power. It's it's like nothing. I don't think there's another way that you can connect as intimately as moving under your own power through a space. And we were able to see these pristine, wild places in their completely natural state where you felt like you were the only humans on the planet. As we ran along and got deeper connected and deeper connected, we eventually came out into a city and, and that's where we finished. And it was such a bittersweet experience to see what true wild is in a protected state and then back into uh, civilization and how we take it all for granted and the need for both. I mean, I think that, I mean, civilization can't disappear, but there's a need to have wild places to let us connect to what it really should feel like. <laughs> uh, why do you feel like you were motivated or perhaps why did you feel even more motivated to do more with your time that you have here on the planet as a result of that experience? Because you, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to. Nobody's asking sure. you to. You got plenty on your plate as a, as a PA, as a runner, as a, as a father and a husband. That, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. And, and I think the answer is when I look in the eyes of my kids and I see that I had this place that I was able to see and to be profoundly influenced by. And if we don't take action, if I don't take action, they may not get that or they're the generation that follows them may not get that. And we're at such a pivotal time in humanity that I can't ignore the need to protect those places. And, and it, it goes beyond the fact that I, I have to do it. Um, even if I don't have quote unquote time, um, I need to dedicate as much as I can to helping protect and preserve those places for the future. I, I, I get it. I, I just I, I asked this question because I, I think everybody's process is, is different and it's unique and I feel like it's very easy for people to look at you or another athlete and say, Oh, they just have this privileged life and they're they're doing this thing because it makes them look good, right? I mean we talked about that's like a very extrinsic motivation. But I actually think much like you require your run in the morning to be functional at work, we require these positive connections 
whether you call it a flow state or these really powerful memories, to actually expand our horizon of what's important for our purpose, our legacy. And um, that's what I find fascinating about these, these conversations with people like you is, it, is it's all born out in experience. You know, there's a story, there's an experience, and, and then all of a sudden, I just have to do this thing. I to- no, I totally agree. And I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, all, the, all of the amazing places that I've been able to go to. And I, I not too long ago, read the book uh, Tribe, Sebastian Junger. Yeah, yeah, um, and a part of that book that really stood out to me was the, and, and it might be, might be blurring it with some other thoughts that I had associated, but the importance of people that were moved between groups and went to the other place and then came to tell the story of what was there. Mm. And, and I see adventure athletes, particularly in the arena of activism, as that person, you know, we go to these places, these far-flung, maybe exotic or remote places that a lot of the world will never go to and never experience. And I see it as our, our duty to come back to our group and explain why we need to keep wild around us because we've experienced wild at a different level. And it, it changes how you interact with just your normal environment when you've been in these other environments. And, and it's from that experience. And then you add the adventure part. Of, I mean, you could, you could fly to Patagonia and drive around in a car and come home and you wouldn't be as influenced as if you go down and you climb or you ski or you sweat your way across uh, a mountain range. And that the combination of the physical experience and the geographic experience changes you as a human and I think gives us this insight maybe to need to share with the broader community what that's like and why we need to have wild around us. I I guess the other analogy I would would just play, because I'm sure you understand this too, and just being a healthcare provider, you know, we we enter in other people's lives all the time, right? And um, to see that world that not everybody sees in their own lives, it definitely makes me approach my interactions with other people. And and I have compassion for things that I wouldn't necessarily have compassion for because I'm, I'm, I, see things that I think not everybody sees. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you go into an exam room with a patient, you get shown a different world a lot of times. You know, people trust you with their deepest secrets. And that does the same thing. I think it, it, it affects you as, a, as an individual and gives you a greater empathy for the people that you just interact with on a day-to-day basis. As we finish our interview, I ask Luke about the concept of privilege in our lives, the fact that we have the luxury to indulge in our pursuits outside, and if that might be a challenge for him as an activist. And of course, we finish with a little advice for those who may want to follow in his footsteps. It's tough. It's really tough because I do feel like I've had I have an incredible amount of privilege in my life. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, you know, maybe you could call it a blessing and a curse, I guess. But but I think that by being able to meet people where they stand, wherever that is, whether they agree or disagree, or if they've had that experience or not, trying to find a common ground is the is the key to to finding truth with this. And it's not easy. There's people that are going to disagree. And it's okay for people to disagree. I think maybe we worry too much if someone doesn't like what we have to say. But it, when it comes to activism, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I'm not afraid to, to lay it out there and say, explain what I'm passionate about and what I feel strongly about, despite what the repercussions would be. <laughs> yeah. And caring from that, and I'm going to be respectful of your time because I want to give you some time with the kids and, and dinner time here. But I know you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your engagement with Protect Our Winners, and 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 certainly they have thrown the hat in. They've entered in an arena that's it's very contentious with climate change and the debate around climate change. And and I think Protect Our Winners uh, is 
a group that is is open to scrutiny because we talked about this this thing about being criticized for being a um, kind of a privileged group and and on the surface I could imagine some of some people could look at the group and be like oh they're just you know a bunch of privileged skiers that yeah if you look literally at the name protect our winners is they just want to protect you know snow to ski and so I, I think there is that that criticism is there and yet what they're doing and what they're trying to do is is really important work they are staring at that criticism they certainly understand that it's out there and yet they're still in the arena right they're still doing what yeah. what needs to be done and you and another cadre of uh, very successful and talented runners have, have begun to engage with them and I guess I ask why, why, why did you decide to do that? And I'm sure you recognize that as well and kind of wondering, well, okay, what, I'm a skier, but I'm really a runner. But what, what did you find was, was important about your involvement with them and maybe explain a little bit more about what you think the value of what they're doing is at this point? Yeah. So a, a little over a year ago, there was a group of us that got together, friends in the, in the running world that determined that we needed to find a better way to speak to our community about activism about public lands is what we originally started to meet with. And we spent months brainstorming, having meetings, phone calls. We met together in person a couple of times and we decided that we wanted to form this group and we were going to create essentially a, a not-for-profit group to work on public lands issues focused with the trail running community. And near, we, we were in the process of forming, doing the legal formation of this group and a connection with Protect Our Winders was made. And they shared, I mean, it might be an internal slideshow that they shared with us that immediately changed how I saw the entire public lands issues. Uh, and there was a statement in there and then some kind of wording behind it that public lands are a climate change issue. And I had never tried to put those two together. And, you know, as we look at as our climate is changing and there's a higher demand for resources, that our public lands are at risk because of that. And maybe instead of just fighting to protect public lands, also working on the bigger picture or the bigger problem, treating the cause of the disease, as opposed to just treating the symptoms, a bigger change could be made. And through several uh, very lively discussions, the group of us decided that it would be best to kind of join our efforts with Protect Our Winners as they formed kind of a new group called POW Trail. It essentially allowed us to have this space to try to work with speaking to the trail running community directly and have the infrastructure of an existing group that's doing great work. And for me, it's been very powerful as I've gone through this kind of evolution as an activist of looking at how climate change is really affecting public lands. And as we do work with a group that's solely focused on climate change, that will be able to help protect public lands and to do good work for the planet. And yeah, there's some criticism out there. I'm okay with it. We're doing good work and um, we got a lot more work to do. I think that it's going to be really exciting to see where we go as a unified voice as we move into election season. I think it's important that the efforts that are being done to to talk about politicians and how politicians from a local to a national level affect our planet and how and how it's going to look in the next 10, 20 and 100 years. Uh, and the decisions that we make now are going to have repercussions. So it's exciting to be part of Protect Our Winners and, and POW Trail. And, and I'm, I'm proud to have my name associated with it yeah. at this point. Maybe for not not everybody that listens to this podcast follows all the Instagram feeds, but maybe highlight actually what POW is doing as it relates to the upcoming elections, it's obviously yeah. a, big, a big new expanse of their operation. Yeah, so so Protect Our Winners also just launched something called the Protect Our Winners, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name, AF. Action Fund. <laughs> Action Fund, there we go. I think it's hashtag POW AF. Um, so the, uh, the Action Fund, where it's a specific type of nonprofit that is allowed to go right into the political arena and they can endorse or not endorse candidates uh, in the political sphere. And their, their focus is to do it on track records regarding climate change. And on a daily basis, they are helping educate the world, particularly, hopefully, voting citizens in the U.S. on, on who is doing good for the planet and who isn't. Um, they've got a really cool initiative coming out soon that'll be a, a ballot guide. It will give you great information 
specifically by candidate on, on who, who to look towards for good leadership on climate change and public lands. And it's a really, it's a really cool space. It's not, there are not very many groups in this space. Mm-hmm. It's hotly contested <laughs> when you start calling people out on their decisions as political leaders. That's good. Well, I, I um, Luke, I, I, I just want to commend you. Thanks so much for I mean, putting yourself in the arena. I know you say you don't care about the criticism, but I think that it takes strengths to do that. I, you know, you're in a profile position. It's easy to be criticized. We, we kind of touched on this topic of uh, being judged as a privileged group that, you know, we can, we can do these things because all we care about is protecting the activities we love. But I, I, I hope after this conversation, some people can understand that it really is more about a process of being a better person and, and thinking a little bit more altruistically about our time on the planet and how we want to give back. And I, I do like to give advice to, you know, young listeners that are admiring you and, and appreciating the confidence in the voice and, and, and how you do, but they, they may feel a bit illegitimate to be able to make a difference because they don't have the same platform you do. And I can imagine a similar conversation happening with one of your kids, you know, in, in the future that they're embarrassed or they are afraid to fail about speaking out on issues that are important to them. I, is there a piece of advice you would give to your child or to someone hypothetically that I'm laying out here? Uh, oh yeah. This is, this is something I think about a lot. Um, and and coming coming off of this event that I did in Italy, coming off the tour, um, as I looked at that as an event, it was really daunting. It seemed impossible. Um, just like stepping into being an activist or you know speaking up in your community might seem impossible. And the 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 solution is really simple: take the step, take one step, then take another one, and then take another one, and just keep going. And the doors will open as you go. Sometimes they'll be closed and you have to step around. But the only way to accomplish the impossible is to step forward. For those of you who want to learn more about Luke, you can check out his site at challengeofbalance.com or find him on Instagram. Hopefully, we can do a little follow-up on the voter guide, but you can check out the Protect Our Winners Action Fund site for more info. All right, usual business. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast, The Fern Line, about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. Please check out his podcast, or even better, purchase some of his music on iTunes. And hey, thanks for listening to episode 15, y'all. We hope you've been here from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure, you know, we'd love if you could let us know. And the best way to support this podcast is tell a friend or two. Give us a good review, click some stars our way on iTunes, or better yet, just share with some of your friends. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks, all. Keep adventuring. Keep adventuring.